0: Hello and welcome to Live from the Space Shed, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, and me, (coughs) sorry, yeah, I mean you, (coughs) Mini John. Long story short, a few years ago I accidentally set up my own space agency, based out of the shed at the bottom of my garden. Turns out that if you go around telling people you're the director of human spaceflight operations for the Unlimited Space Agency, wearing an orange spacesuit, more people than you might think want to play along. And now, the British astronaut Tim Peake is our patron and he took me with him to space. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all right. He took you with him to space. So, Mini John became UNSA's first astronaut. woo Since then, we've been touring in UNSA's mobile headquarters, The Space Shed, to festivals like Latitude and Blue Dot, telling stories, talking to some super cool space and science people. And we've recorded our chats so you can find out about their amazing work as well. So... The thing is that, at the time of recording, it's nearly the end of the summer, 2019, and in the UK, we've just recorded the hottest temperature ever for a bank holiday weekend. Which sounds great, right? Except it isn't. Because at the same time, in South America, huge sections of the Amazon rainforest are being destroyed by raging fires. The nation of Iceland, just a few weeks ago, held a funeral for the first glacier lost due to climate change. So, for at least these next few episodes of the podcast, we're getting a bit more serious. We're turning our focus away from space and back to Earth, where we need to really urgently deal with this climate crisis, because it's all our fault. The science is clear that we, humans, are responsible for the global heating that has caused this climate emergency. Uh, yes? <coughs> Mini John? <coughs> oh, okay, okay, come in, come in. Where have you been? I'm recording for the podcast. Oh, uh, I was just going to talk about how we're running out of time to save the planet because of global heating caused by humans burning excessive amounts of fossil fuels, and that only by radically rethinking and restructuring our societies and the prevailing global economic systems might we have even the slimmest chance of surviving as a species and not wiping out all other life on Earth in the process. Eh? Hmm, too intense? (laughs) Yeah, well, it is scary. (laughs) That's a really good question, MJ. What are we going to do? Yeah, you're really good at recycling. (laughs) Well, you don't feel the cold, do you? So we don't need to put the heating on, and my spacesuit keeps me nice and warm. Uh Well, talking about it is a good start, like we are now. And I've been talking to some brilliant climate scientists and activists this summer who have loads of great ideas about how we might be able to save the planet. Well, for this episode, Rupert Reid visited us when the Space Shed landed back in the Faraway Forest at Latitude Festival. Rupert is an associated professor of philosophy, sounds fancy, at the University of East Anglia. He's an author, he's a blogger, and most passionately, he's a climate and environmental campaigner, often acting as a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. (laughs) Extinction Rebellion? Would you like to find out more about who they are and how you could get involved with their mission to fight the climate crisis? Uh huh. Okay, then, let's get into it with Rupert Reed representing for Extinction Rebellion in this episode of Live from the Space Shed. Yay! Good morning, Lassitude <laughs> Festival! Welcome, welcome. My name is John, John Spooner. I am the Director of Human Spaceflight Operations, obviously, here at the <laughs> Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to Answer HQ, the spaceship. Come on, give it up for the spaceship! Yeah! Okay. Who thought it was going to take off? <laughs> I don't know why people laugh at that. Like, Genuinely trying to get it off the ground. Um... Yeah, I'm John. Uh, today, we've got a really extraordinary programme of things happening in the space shed. At two o'clock today, I'm going to be uh, telling a story. It's called How to Save the Planet. If you're interested in that stuff, I think some of you might be. Um, at four o'clock uh, then, because today is the 50th, the actual 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landings. Woo! <laughs> So we have Dr. Alice Bunn here, later this afternoon, uh, who's the International Director of the UK Space Agency. She's going to be talking about the future moon missions that are maybe being planned at the moment, that the UK's involved in. Then we've got a live set from the electronic musician Minotaur Shock. We're showing a film in the shadow of the moon all about this. But before then, right now, uh, one of my favourite things about my job... (laughs) this is my job, is that I get to meet some really, really interesting people. And one of those people is here with us this morning. They are a thinker, a philosopher, based locally here in the east of England. They're also here today representing uh, Extinction Rebellion. Would you please give a massive faraway Forest welcome to Rupert (laughs) Reid! Come on up here, Rupert. Oh, look. I never get the walk-in music right. <laughs> hey Rupert, thank you so much for joining. Alright. Close the door there, we don't want to let all the heat out. <laughs> See, imitative behaviour. Um Hi, Rupert. Hi. Uh thank you so much for coming down. I'm gonna press this button.
1: Does it does it do something nasty to me?
0: Uh, well, it depends. I can never remember what order things go in. It should just turn the music. Yeah, it did. <laughs> just turn the music off. Great. You are here this weekend. Uh, you've got. Uh, you're working just up the hill from us here, aren't you? Well, so I'm a
1: philosopher at UEA. So yeah, I've got a bit of a toehold in the tent up there. Yeah. I'm also with the brilliant Extinction Rebellion dudes in the tent just over there. Yeah. And yeah. And uh, if anyone likes the kind of things that I'm going to be saying in the next 40 minutes or so, I urge you to go to the Extinction Rebellion tent and get signed up because we're going to be touching on that
0: stuff. Yes, we are. Um, Because this week, the Unlimited Space Agency, we're all about space. And also this this last year, we've turned our focus really sharply to the climate crisis. Uh, what's, What's your preferred word to use? There's a lot of language that is important around this issue. What do you use?
1: So, I think climate crisis is okay. I think the the long ecological emergency is quite descriptive. Climate breakdown is also quite descriptive. We've all seen what's happening to our weather over the last few years, and that is the first stages of climate chaos and climate breakdown, unless we... Stop it! It's going to take everything down within uh, probably the next. 10 let's 50 not. Let's years. not.
0: Let's not. Let's not open with that because we <laughs> want people to stay. We are aware that is you know it's uh, it's midday on a Saturday morning at Latitude. Stick around. <laughs> We're going to come to the end of the world. Um, <laughs> so the space agency, all about. Uh, space climate crisis is our new thing but particularly because uh, it's the anniversary of the Apollo moon landings the Apollo 8 mission the astronaut Bill Anders took a very famous photograph called Mm. Earthrise which was um, the first time we'd been able to see the entirety of our planet from space but I know that you've got some thoughts on why what is it about seeing our planet from Mm. space that has infected the climate movement
1: yeah so when I think about space travel, I have a very um, bifurcated view of it right, on the one hand you might, not, you might want to close your ears for the next <laughs> minute or so. on the one hand uh, we've got the, the terrible danger that people think thoughts like, well maybe we can go and live on the moon or Mars and so it doesn't matter if we destroy the earth uh, a thought which infects uh, a lot of um, scientists uh, and a lot of science fiction uh, it's the premise, for example, of uh, Christopher Nolan's appalling film Interstellar.
0: Well, we're gonna um, we can argue about this one. <laughs> I mean, let's get into this just momentarily. Yeah. Why is it awful? You can't make, can't say that. Well, look, I've
1: I've written about what a brilliant filmmaker I think Christopher Nolan is. I've published uh, on it, but I think this this film he really gets it totally wrong because he really buys into the idea that. There's nothing sacred, there's nothing unique about our planet. We might as well ditch it and go on to another one, and then if we've done that once, then why not do it again? That, that I think, is, is is... central to to the uh, the plot trajectory of Interstellar
0: okay no fair enough actually and this is interesting because of course this is the angle that you and Extinction Rebellion lots of people are trying to force us to focus on because often yeah. the conversation I have coming from that space background is that Interstellar uh, the science is really good in it actually which is uh, strange for a sci-fi film but actually the message is really really bad yeah. okay cool yeah. and the uh, another just,
1: just for half a minute or that you might want to close your ears for uh Another thing about space travel, of course, which is hugely dangerous, is the idea that, well, maybe there's going to be more and more of it, maybe we can have space tourism. Richard Branson and others want to have space tourism. We're in a climate and environment emergency. In an emergency, it doesn't make any sense at all to blow vast amounts of fossil fuels, firing ourselves into space for fun. So those are some of the massive downsides of space travel from my perspective. But then there's this massive upside, which you alluded to, right? When we first saw the Earth from space, when we had the Earthrise photo and the photo of the whole globe uh, from space, two of the most famous photos in human history, it became possible for us to appreciate more deeply than we ever had before the preciousness and vulnerability of our home. So as I say, I think it's no coincidence that these are two of the most famous photos in history. I think they're really beautiful, and I think they're very, very important to us. Um, shall I mention also the, the films that I'm interested in in this regard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've just trashed Interstellar, but I think there are some very, very great films about space travel. What, what do I think those films are? So, um, and actually I've written about them in, in, a, in a book, which I'm going to show you, not, not one of those ones. Another book? Another book, yeah. So this book, don't buy this book, right? This, this book is by me. It's called A Film Philosophy of, an Ecol- of Ecology and Enlightenment. But I have to warn you, it's very, very expensive. It will come out and pay back next year. If you want to read it beforehand, get it from your library. Don't buy it. Um, but it's got lots of good stuff in it. And among the films that I discuss in it are the film I consider to be obviously the greatest uh, fantasy film about space travel ever. 2000, what a space odyssey. Well, No controversy there. Well, uh, I don't
0: I mean, Armageddon.
1: Armageddon, <laughs> out of here. It's literally
0: yeah. the seventh best film ever made.
1: <laughs> um, the best uh, fiction film, in my opinion, about space travel—a bit more controversial. This, in my opinion, it's uh, Quaron's uh, 3D masterpiece, Gravity. Yes. Um, and the best um, fact-based uh, space travel film uh, in history, Apollo 13. Now, what do all these three films have in common? Can anyone spot it? 2001: A Space Odyssey, Gravity, Apollo 13. Anyone spot what they've got in common? Yes it happened? It happens. Yeah. It happened. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and and what what do we do after happened sorry. in each of those films sorry sorry youngsters sorry. Happened. you've never heard that stuff at home anyway have you no. all, all right you have, uh, yeah. shall, I, shall i tell you and once, once i tell you i think it'll make sense to most people they're all films about coming home right yes they're the opposite of interstellar in 2000 on a space odyssey the clues in the name right it's based on homer's odyssey it's about coming back home again and that's the crucial thing that happens at the very end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. In gravity, the whole thing's about coming home. And it's about the preciousness of this Earth. I wish we were sitting on the ground. I'd like to touch the Earth at this point. But anyway, you're, the Earth is close to us all here, as it always is. Um, and gravity, of course, th- again, the clue's in the title, right? Gravity is about literally being drawn back to Earth, but also metaphorically, psychologically, emotionally being drawn back to Earth as our home. Um, and in Apollo 13... You know, I, think it's, I think it's a wonderful thing that our greatest true story of space travel is not about going to the moon. It's not about going to Mars or whatever. It's about being able to get back home after... <coughs> happened. So I think that really tells us something important, that those three great films of fantasy, fiction and fact are all about the draw of us back to this beautiful, unique planet. Uh, and and all of them, of course, uh, uh, feature at one point or another shots very similar to those great photos.
0: I really agree with you, and I think there's something about the literal perspective that you gain. All the yeah. all the accounts that those people that travelled in space have of they that call experience. call it the overview effect. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's very common among astronauts. Many astronauts, on so coming back to Earth, say, "Wow, I, I've I've be, I've woken up. I understand now." Some of them became environmentalists. Many of them went through profound spiritual transformations. Um, you know that should tell us something so that for me is the big uh, the big upside of space travel that it 's given us that opportunity, and I think it's It's vital to us at this moment in history that we fully harness that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I will add to that, if I'm allowed, a few things as well. I mean, there's a huge amount of technology, and I know that technology is not the solution to the climate crisis. At the same time, there is a huge amount that space has allowed us to do. So, the development of solar and photovoltaic Mm. energies in particular would not have been where it is, where it is now extremely efficient, very affordable, um, and that's due to its development as a technology for use in space, which might be part of the solution to the climate breakdown crisis emergency. how how bad is it Rupert it's pretty bad yeah it's pretty bad so
1: shall I wave these books at this point yeah So these books you can buy if you want they're not madly expensive this one is called facing up to climate reality by my think-tank greenhouse the subtitle gives you a bit of a clue honesty disaster and hope and then this one is a little bit more full-on this is uh, my uh, my newest little book it's called this civilization is finished
0: Um, just before you'll get super depressed uh, you would have called it something else, wouldn't you? Yeah. Civilization is. <laughs> yeah. Just
1: for you all get super depressed. Uh, the, the meaning of the title is that uh, it's my opinion based on based on hard evidence, and I work alongside the climate scientists at UEA. Um, and let me just tell you one thing about the climate scientists at UEA: they publish these papers saying, "Well, it looks really bad, uh, right?" But if you get them talking in the bar about what they really think, then they'll usually say, well, actually, it's worse than in the papers, because science is inherently a conservative process, right? Science is inherently a process where they never want to go beyond the evidence. But what they actually think, nine times out of 10, is that things are worse than we can prove on the basis um, of the evidence. So the meaning of the title of my book, This Civilization is Finished, is that the stage we've reached now, the only way we're going to be able to avoid a collapse is if we transform everything so deeply and so fast that what comes out of it will look completely different to what we have. So this civilization in anything like the form that we have it is over. The only, the only choices are either we collapse or we change everything really fast and produce something beautiful and new which will be very, very different, much more local, much more energy descended, etc.
0: Well, let's um, just for clarity, because I've read your paper in response to Jen Bundell's... Bundell? Yeah, Jim Bouldell's ben- paper, which is about deep adaptation, yeah. which is the most bleak read, or it's on. He's uh, recorded as a talk on YouTube as well. It's terrifying. Um, but you've written a response to that, which feels a little more hopeful. Yeah. But I think for anyone that doesn't know that civilization is likely to collapse, could you just um, describe a little bit for what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So. A lot of people, when they think... Well, firstly, let's, let's contextualise a bit more broadly. We talk a lot about climate, right? But actually, the ecological crisis is much deeper and much broader. The pollinators, for example. Many people know the pollinators are really under threat. Um, and if we lose the pollinators, we're going to have some kind of societal or civilizational collapse because many of our crops are completely dependent upon them. So climate is only one part of a much broader problem. The reason we focus on climate so much is, as far as we can tell, it's the one that is likeliest to get us first. Um, and while other species are being wiped out willy-nilly, I mean, a truly terrifying and appalling fact is that we are sending one species to extinction about every 10 minutes. Right? So by the time this talk is over, four more species will have gone extinct. Um, but we care most of all, so it seems, about our own existence. And in terms of our own existence, climate is the most uh, um, pressing threat. Um, and the threat is extremely severe. People worry about rising sea levels and so on. We, we talk, we hear about global overheat and the sea levels g- gradually going up. And we hear about the temperature gradually rising. But those aren't the things to worry about the most. Yeah, sure, sea level rise is, is a terrible problem if you look into the medium to longer term. And it's, it's very worrying in terms of things like, for example, all the nuclear power stations that we have, which are all on the coast (laughs) great work team Uh, really clever Uh, but there are things which are likely to get us much sooner than that so think of last summer for example right last summer we had an unprecedented heat wave which lasted till july and many crops in this country lost 30 to 40 percent of their yields now if that heat wave had gone on till. August or September, that figure would have gone up to 50 to 60%, and we'd have been really feeling it and really seeing it in massively elevated food prices. But we assume that we're always going to be able to buy in food from abroad, because of course we in this country can't feed ourselves, right? Another absurd fact. Uh, We only produce 60% of our own food net. Um, We assume that we're going to be able to buy food from other countries always, right? We're, We're rich. Well, start thinking about if that kind of... Crop collapse occurs across a much broader swathe of the earth. We're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to go to um, uh, France or um, uh, Russia or whoever and say, "Well, you know, you've got to give us some food because we're starving." If they can say in response, "Well, we're going to starve too if we give you that food," right? People think oh, it's about sea level rise or it's about you know the poor people in Bangladesh and so on. And of course, those people are feeling it much worse right now already, but. Just because we're in a so-called developed country does not mean we're immune at all. So what Jim Bendel and I are both saying is that within the next uh, five to ten years, it is entirely possible that there will be a major civilizational collapse event uh, in countries like this. Um, And that's how bad things are. The difference between Jim and myself is that while he says he thinks this is pretty much certain, I still think there is hope that we may be able to head it off. And that hope has just experienced an enormous boost this year, the first real boost it's had for a hell of a long time, and it's because of those flags that fly flying, they can give them a wave. <laughs> <laughs> Extinction Rebellion is the first evidence, if you will, that we have that there is hope for, that we've had for a long time. The way that we, we planned what we were trying to do in April and I was very worried, many of us were worried that it wasn't going to work. Um, We thought we'd be crushed by the media and crushed by the police. But it did work. 1,100 heroes got arrested, and the mood of the whole country was transformed in a fortnight. And after that fortnight, you had 63% of people in Britain saying, yes, there is a climate emergency. Uh, 73% of people in Britain saying, I'm going to be willing to vote differently on the basis of that emergency. Um, the environment went up as an issue from like way down to being the third most important issue on the agenda, according to the polls. Ahead of immigration and ahead of the economy. Wow. The environment's a bigger issue than the economy, now, that's, real, that's transformative. Um, you've got the parliament, of course, saying that there is a climate and environment emergency. Many other things I could cite. Huge transformative effect. It's the first real evidence we have of hope that we may be willing and able to make the kind of huge, rapid changes we need to make. If we're going to avoid civilizational collapse, the first real evidence of that, that we've had for a long time.
0: Uh, and I agree. I think it's. I think it's probably my duty to go. Yes, Extinction Rebellion. We're big fans, big supporters, and also there are other people that have. Been f- forging a path for, this course, for a very, course, very long time. It's, it's not entirely. Th- there is a mood and there is of an course. understanding that has been. And I think the school strike for climate. Totally. Possibly even so in conjunction with and possibly even more than Extinction Rebellion, which I think, because it's led by adults and because it's uh, causing the sort of problems if, if the school strikes hadn't also been happening, I think it would have been more, I mean, it's a difficult yeah. thing to know, so. We but basically, really, there is a mood. Really no,
1: and, and absolutely the climate school strikes have been crucial. And my opinion is that Greta Thunberg is a world historical figure. I mean that quite seriously. I think she's as important a figure in human history as uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Uh, I, I think she's completely remarkable. What she started is utterly remarkable. The thing is this, though. The climate school strikers, they, they've they completely kind of tugged at our heart sh- heartstrings and they've made a lot of adults feel um, um, grief and feel guilt uh, and been sort of primed to be ready to change. But I think that Extinction Rebellion was crucial in, as it were, pushing people over the edge, yeah. right? Because what Extinction Rebellion did is something which you can't... Uh, what the climate school strikers do is wonderful. When they go on strike every Friday or every once, one Friday a month, etc. But it's actually quite easy for the authorities in the final analysis to handle a march or a one-day event, etc. What's difficult for them to handle is mass civil disobedience, mass non-violent direct action, when you get out into the streets and you don't just stay there for a day, and you stay there for a week and then you stay there for another week, that's when it gets hard and that's when it starts to have economic effects and that's when they and the elites get worried about it and that's what we did I- in April and that's what we're planning to do again uh, in October. So as I say, if you like this talk and if you feel that the sense of the emergency, please come and join us in London, uh, in October. Put October the 7th in your diaries and also head over to the XR tent just over there.
0: Who here has already taken part in any Extinction Rebellion actions, civil disobedience? There's quite a lot. of Latitude's that kind of a place, isn't it? It's like we're all here. We, we are Extinction Rebellion but we're going to enjoy it while, <laughs> while it lasts, while civilization is still here. It's, uh, um So that's good. Uh, and I, th- I agree with you. The, the persistence part yep. of that and keeping yep. it front yep. and centre is really important. Um so what, how in case people haven't uh, really understood and maybe all you see is you've read it in the newspapers extinction rebellion is doing this thing they're blocking the race but what, what is extinction rebellion doing to make the climate to fight the climate crisis how do you do it
1: well we've got three demands right uh, and we're trying to put pressure most of all on the government but also on all institutions um, so we're, we're, uh, we're putting pressure on the media. Um, and we're increasingly working with people in in all walks of life, actually. And the demands are firstly tell the truth, tell the truth about how severe the problem is. And that's what I'm trying to do in, in these books. And that's what XR is trying to do generally. The second demand is halt the mass extinction by 2025 and go carbon net zero by 2025. And that obviously is absolutely crucial. That's the act now demand. We've got to act really fast really swiftly if we're actually going to make it through uh, this. And it's really crucial that it is swift. So 2025. So you probably have heard that that among the results of Extinction Rebellion this year and the school strikes and so forth, um, is that the government has astonishingly legislated for a carbon net zero target of 2050. Uh, And we say that target is way too far off in the future. It's almost like kicking it into the long grass, really. Here's a way of thinking about what's wrong with that target. If you say, we're going to go carbon net zero by 2050, and if you say, we're in a climate emergency, then what you're saying is, it's an emergency. Let's act really fast. Let's stop making things worse in 31 years' time. right? Because every year when we're not carbon net zero, we're making things worse. We're putting more of these weapons of mass destruction, which are fossil fuels, up into the atmosphere. It can't be right to say, yeah, it's an emergency. We'll stop making the emergency worse in 31 years' time. So we say, no, we've got to stop making it worse absolutely as quickly as possible. And we reckon it could be possible to do it within six years. And very interestingly, actually, the first reports come out today from um, uh, from a, a university um, saying that uh, that may be necessary uh, and possible by the great economist uh, Tim Jackson, who's a colleague of mine in, uh, in Greenhouse. Um, so exciting times for people... Waking up to the possibility that maybe this is necessary and maybe we're going to make it happen. Do you think it will? How optimistic are you about that? Well, as I say, um, Extinction Rebellion gives us, in the context that we're in, of the weather collapse, of the climate school strikers, etc., gives us, I think, the first, if you will, evidence-based hope we've had in a long time. I mean, for the last few years, I've been running on empty. I've been running on kind of pure hope and pure faith that maybe something wonderful is going to happen. Uh, And I've been giving these... these, uh, somewhat gloomy talks with titles like this civilization is finished saying the only way we're going to make it through is if we change everything really fast we don't show the evidence that we're going to do that but now something's changed so, so now i've got more hope than i've had for a long time more hope than i've had for a long time And i think that's true of a lot of people in extinction rebellion i think that uh, an awful lot of us are in it because we know we have to do the right thing which is a different thing from thinking that we actually are going to win right so it's not about kind of making sure you get the results It's about being honest and absolutely doing your best. But it's great to be in a situation where one can finally think after what happened in April, after that transformation, maybe we are going to be able to pull this off. And if we are going to do so, we need it to be much bigger still in October. So if you weren't there in in April, do come be with us in October. You don't have to be arrested, by the way. There's lots of things that you can do which are helpful, uh, which are not being arrested that you need loads and loads of people to support any person who gets arrested but having said that mass non-violent direct action including people being arrested and ultimately being imprisoned that is an essential part of it that is how the suffragettes succeeded that is how the the uh, Indian independence movement succeeded that is how the civil rights movement succeeded this struggle is even bigger and harder but it's going to how it's, it's how it's going to work if it is going to work. And
0: particularly because a lot of those laws that are there to, that allow you to be arrested are there in order to suppress freedom of speech and to make sure that we don't cause trouble. I mean, the, yeah. they're pretty oppressive laws that get used to go. We well, are in. You sat down in the road, nicking you, and now you've got a criminal record. It's mm. uh, extraordinary. And the third demand. Yeah. Uh, or the third? So the third th- demand is
1: create a real democracy in order to bring the second demand into reality. What do we mean by real democracy? Well, part of our thinking is that it's obvious that our democratic institutions have basically failed us, right? We wouldn't be in this incredible mess if they hadn't. That isn't to say that the failure is necessarily completely terminal, but something pretty radical needs to change. Representative democracy is not rising to the challenge of this crisis. So, yeah, it's brilliant that after our April rebellion, Parliament said there is a climate and environment emergency. That's superb. But what action have they taken on that since then? Have they started to act now to end the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis? No. So what we say is we've got to enhance our democracy and we say put some of the power back directly in the hands of people through creating citizens' assemblies. And what citizens' assemblies would be, it's a bit like a jury but on a larger scale uh, and with a broader remit. So juries are drawn from the general public. A citizens' assembly would be drawn in the same way from the general public, like democracy was it, in its beginnings, actually, in Athens. Uh, And you would make sure that it was a representative sample of the public. You would then give them super-expert advice across the spectrum from everybody who's uh, well-informed about the science of the crisis, about the things we could do about it, etc. You would then leave them to deliberate about it in a way that would probably be somewhat kind of calmer and... uh, less influenced by big money and so on and so forth than debates are in in parliament and in government and then the civ- what the citizens assembly comes up with that would be the basis for changes that we then made radical changes that we then made and one of the tricks here one of the beauties of this is that it gives politicians some cover right because there actually are quite a lot of politicians my role in extinction rebellion is to be part of the group of uh, political liaison which means that I meet with well I met last week the Lib Dem leadership candidates uh, I met the week before that with uh, with Michael Gove and some of his colleagues. I'm meeting on Monday with the uh, Shadow Treasury team and so on and so forth. There are quite a lot of politicians who want to do the right thing. But what they often say to us is things like, we're under such pressure from corporate lobbying and we're under such pressure from citizens who aren't necessarily ready to make the, the kind of changes in their lifestyles that need to be made. So if we do these citizens' assemblies, right, what we can have is a bunch of citizens coming together and say, these are the changes that need to be made. And the politicians will be able to say, look, it's not us saying this, right? It's you. It's the citizens, well-informed citizens, deliberating thinking about it. So that's the, the 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 kind of clever trick, really, about the citizens' assemblies. It's a way of enhancing and deepening our democracy in a way that may be able to help politicians who do want to do the right thing to do the right thing.
0: And it sounds like a really sensible, smart... Uh egalitarian idea but if this is not without its. and i agree with it i think it's a great but it's not without its criticisms as well right? you talk about a representative spectrum of people no. and this is and there is and i think it's useful in the same way where it's useful to talk about the issues around uh climate breakdown how that makes us feel what the impacts really are um but also some of the criticisms that come at extinction rebellion so how do you create a truly representative spectrum of people because you were talking as well about we need to then look to be creating a future, this beautiful future, potentially, where it's different from how it is now. But mm. it has to include everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there is some criticism of XR for not, at the moment, being very active, including everybody. You know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not very convinced by that criticism, to be honest. Um, uh, firstly, I think you have to look at who those criticisms have come from. So some of those criticisms have come from, for example, uh, radical climate activists from ethnic minority groups. OK, I think we should listen carefully to those criticisms. But many of those criticisms you're talking about come from people like Adam Bolton on Sky News and Jacob Rees-Mogg on um, LBC. Um, And these people are, not to put too fine a point on it, upper-class twits, right? (laughs) And when upper-class twits turn around to me and say, how dare you middle-class people teach us how to live? I say, well... <laughs> Who the hell are you to lecture anybody, you know, with your, with your six children all at private schools and so on and so forth? Where do you get off criticising middle-class climate activists? And actually, going beyond that, it just isn't true that Extinction Rebellion is a, is a middle-class dominated um, um, movement. My experience of it is it's actually quite diverse, certainly compared to other organisations that I've been very active in before. Like, I'm, I'm in the Green Party, for example, and the Green Party does have some problems getting enough working-class people involved. But, for example, when I was on uh, Lambeth Bridge with Roger Hallam and others uh, last, uh, last autumn, blocking that bridge, that was the first big civil disobedience that we did, 5,000 of us bro- blocking the bridges in London. How many people were on the, the bridges? Quick show of hands. Yeah, a bunch of people here. Brilliant. Wasn't it amazing? That's one of the things, actually, people don't necessarily understand about Extinction Rebellion, about nonviolent direct action, until they've done it. It's mostly really fun and incredibly liberating it's incredibly liberating to break the law in a good cause with a lot of other people and find out that when there's loads of you doing it it's really hard for the police to stop you um anyway so what i was getting at was that when i was on the lambeth bridge at the start before we um blocked the bridge i was speaking with a lot of the people who were assembling there and i just struck by the incredible diversity of them there were there were there were people from all over the country. People from Merseyside. People from the Northeast, etc. There were um, students. There were teachers. There were old age pensioners. There were agricultural workers. Um, there were um, there was somebody from like a call centre, so. It was really, really genuinely quite diverse. And again, frankly, most of the people who say, Extinction Rebellion is dominated by middle-class white people, they've never been on an Extinction Rebellion (laughs) demonstration, never talked to those people. And as I say, most of the people who say it are upper-class white people, and why the hell should we listen to them?
0: Okay. Well, it's good to know that at least that's being heard as well and paid attention to. And I think, like any democracy, it's just worth making sure that when we talk about representation, that we ensure that that happens as well. So... gonna open it up in just one moment uh, because i'm gonna guess that there are some questions you might have rupert who is really across a lot of the science and the activism of this and then particularly now with extinction rebellion uh, the, i'm gonna imagine there are some questions but before just before we do inside all of this this collective what can the big question that we've been dealing with at the space agency what can i do what can individuals do what do you say in response to that question
1: well again I'm going to turn that question around a bit because I think the most important thing that we can do as individuals is join other people in a mass movement right we need system change individual-based change is not going to be enough we need system change that that is the most important thing you can do the most important thing you do is much more important than what you eat or whether you fly or not or whatever or even whether you go to space the most important thing that you can do is turn out with us and be there on the streets from October the 7th onwards But, of course, it's also good to make changes in your own life, to experience a bit more of what the future might be like, to maybe show a bit of leadership, to try to model the kind of uh, change that you want to uh, describe. So in my own case, for example, I eat uh, um, a mostly uh, vegan diet. I'm a sort of freegan. Um,
0: I've just uh, pledged to... I'm a vegan. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a good one to do. Uh, (laughs) Particularly at festivals. Yeah. I've
1: just pledged to uh, give up uh, flying. I have a car, but I share the car and I don't use it very much. I mostly cycle and take the train. And, you know, all all this is good. But much more important than kind of worrying about your own footprint and so on is make sure that we join together to together reduce our collective footprint absolutely massively because even if you live some kind of really really low-impact lifestyle alone in the woods or whatever well that doesn't get in the way of the juggernaut which is coming to destroy us all yeah there won't be there won't be, it'll be there won't be anywhere to hide if society collapses i mean some people will be better off than others and i'm not saying you know it's it's not a bad idea to do a little bit of prepping i do a little bit of uh, prepping uh, myself
0: i've got a load of food and candles and stuff in my uh... don't tell people you'll be you'll be the f- when the looters come you'll be the first i mean yeah. i have as well but i would never tell anyone i've got the, like...
1: i think this lot are going to be very nice looters <laughs> so i think it's all right we're recording
0: uh, it for a podcast yeah,
1: yeah true that's a good point uh so yeah do a little bit of prepping it also makes it real it makes it psychologically real you think yeah i'm doing this because i i, did, I think that possible this may be needed but beyond under no illusions Unless we stop collapse, it'll be very, very difficult for for very much to to survive it. And also, there's another thing. In terms of preparing for collapse, if you are talking about preparing, again, the best way to do it is collectively. And if if we're serious, and that's part of what Jen Bendel is talking about, where I completely agree with him. If we're serious about thinking collapse is quite likely, right, some kind of collapse, then we need to prepare for it collectively by, for example, making safe all the nuclear waste. I mean, imagine a collapsed society where no one is taking taken care in advance of that collapse of all these nuclear power stations of all the nuclear waste. Do you know what happens to nuclear waste if it's untended, I mean, high high degree high uh, high level nuclear waste. Um, bad, bad, uh, bad. It uh, for the next um, the spent nuclear fuel rods need to be kept cool for hundreds of years, basically. Um, so you, they're in these cooling pools, yeah. Uh, and if those pools go uh, go dry. Um, which they will do very quickly if they're not continually kept cool that's why all the um, nuclear power stations are on the coast mainly they need that water to cool it all the time right um, they, they spontaneously ignite and then they'll burn um, toxic highly toxic radioactive fires into the atmosphere for decades or possibly hundreds of years so you're thinking oh I'm going to survive collapse in my in my lovely little cottage in the woods well unless we manage to work collectively to make sure that there isn't there aren't mega toxic time bombs all over the place you're not going to have a great time in your little cabin in the woods so even in terms of preparing for collapse actually the most meaningful stuff that we can do to guard ourselves against the very real possibility of collapse is collective
0: well right, particularly given how good the government are at preparing for stuff at the moment we can we can rely on them well, that's is again why we need citizen co- assemblies a couple of months towards the b word yeah. w- well
1: prepared <laughs> citizens um, assemblies again should be there to help us prepare for collapse as well as to help us try to stop collapse cool cool cool
0: um gonna send it out here um this is your opportunity to ask uh Reaper representing Extinction rebellion any questions you might have today okay we're gonna come across we're just gonna go straight across uh, like that i think and uh, skip you until a bit later <laughs> <laughs> you're no, no. Right.
2: Um. It's really interesting what you're talking about and sort of terrifying and inspiring at the same time. What is uh, the strategy for engaging corporations in this? You've talked a lot about citizenship and also governments, but my concern is that, really. I'm just interested what your perspective is.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a tough question. And I think we haven't in XR done as much of that yet as we should have done. I'm going to be having my first meet with a bunch of um, corporates in... Um, September Um, and they said to me can we pay you to uh, to come and speak to us about the challenge and so on And I said no I can't take your your money and Extinction Rebellion can't take your money but I will come and talk to you very frankly about the kind of thing I think you ought to be doing if you really want to hear it and so the kind of thing I'm going to say to them is um, you should be giving away your uh, firm to your employees or becoming a co-op or something like that And you should be um, evaluating uh, your business with uh, an ecological and climate bottom line. And if that bottom line is unreachable, um, you should be um, um, declaring yourselves insolvent. And that's the kind of change that we need to have on a legal level. And my colleague, my academic colleague, uh, Richard Murphy, the well-known accountant, there aren't very many well-known accountants. (laughs) uh, uh,
0: Just a straw poll. Who's heard of Richard? It's two people, not that well known. (laughs) He wrote a book called The Joy of Tax.
1: He's quite a kind of PR savvy accountant. Uh, He's got this idea that that the the, the law should change in this way. In other words, that firms that cannot demonstrate that they have a plan, basically, to go carbon uh, neutral and biodiversity safe by maybe 2025 um, would face having to be wound up. That's the kind of radical change uh, that we need. In terms of what's going to happen in October, there's internal discussion in Extinction Rebellion about what we're going to target. My argument is that part of what we target in October should be um, large corporations or maybe especially large financial institutions. And I think it's quite possible that that will happen. So watch that space or maybe get involved with uh, with that side of what we're going to be trying to do on the streets in October.
0: But I wonder as well if it shouldn't be left again. It's a collective responsibility that we have we can't leave it to you because you've put yourself or been able to get into a position where people are asking you for those conversations if any of us work in any of those places that's the sort of thing that even if we Mm. don't have a share or a stake and that making it clear that this is our position we want to see this change and it is a bold thing to do and it can be a scary thing to do because your literal job and livelihood is at risk but I think, I think if people, what Rupert's saying is something we're yeah. going to accept, then there's more at risk not to. That's right. And the, the real risk is that we get to, say,
1: 2035 and society's collapsing. And we look back and think, God, we could have done more. I could have done more. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be in that position. And this I comes down
0: not, to not just biz- businesses and corporate, sorry, Rupert, yeah, but fine. schools as well. Um Universities, all those other organisations that simply aren't doing enough to reduce the amount of energy they use, making uh, climate and energy use the highest pro- on the priority list of function If it's discussed at board meetings, if any of you go to a board meeting and climate isn't on the uh, the agenda, make sure th- that it is.
1: And loads of people, so many people, are now waking up to this. I mean, the whole situation has transformed from where it was even six months ago because of the factors we discussed earlier. So I did give a... a actually, uh, it's not the first thing I've done with big business. I did one little thing with Aviva a few months ago. And I must admit, I was really surprised by the, by several people in the Aviva HQ um, who were really kind of turned onto the issue. And one of them even said, should I give up my job and just come and join Extinction Rebellion full-time? And I said, well, maybe, but also that there are potentially really valuable things you can do from the inside uh, as well. So, yeah, I don't think that... I'm the only person who's thinking this. You're not anymore, you know. I mean, look around. There's lots of people. There's lots of people here, uh, and there's people all over the country waking up and the silence is being broken so if we all break that silence and we all tell the truth that has an enormous
0: power and we had alice bellin yesterday uh from Ten Ten. she was like yeah there's a lot of businesses and organizations that are actually doing really good work on this the ones we really need to go for are the big fossil fuel extraction companies so the bps the shells they're the ones that are (laughs) going to continue to really break things yeah
1: it's very hard for them to go carbon neutral
0: yes uh flight director has has overridden my suggestion for how we navigate this, she, okay, excellent um, Extension Rebellion have done a very, very good job of raising awareness in the UK, a democratic society but environment is global, now I come from a, an area of the world, Asia where it's not so democratic, so how, how are we going to address that challenge of around the world the global addressing of, of, of this environmental challenge yeah That's a crucial
1: question, obviously. First thing I'd say about it is uh, it's really, really important not to allow that to be an excuse for uh, inaction. A lot of people, I I don't think this is your motivation, but a lot of people who say that kind of thing, what they're really uh, looking for is an excuse for saying, well, it's pointless us trying to do anything because, you know, look at China or something. That is completely unacceptable. We have to act because. We started the Industrial Revolution. We, uh, we started this mess. We should take a leadership role on it. Because we're still a very rich country, we're still consuming way, way more uh, than we should and way more than most people in most of those uh, Asian countries. And simply because we can. The responsibility is on everyone to do what they can. Now, here's the exciting bit. We are actually... Um, we are actually, with Extinction Rebellion and with the climate school strikes and, and with, I would say for example, the huge uh, upswing of support for the Green Party in the May uh, elections, which I was very excited to, to see, we are actually leading the way a bit now um, in this country, in Britain, at least among uh, so-called uh, developed countries. Yeah? Um, and other countries are looking to us for some leadership. So I have some contacts, for example, in Extinction Rebellion USA, some quite strong contacts there. And they are literally looking to try to kind of use what we've done as a model um, to uh, make similar changes in the states or at the federal level uh, in the U.S. Now, imagine if that happens, right? If, If we manage to actually help a huge transformation start in the United States. Which would presumably start with the ejection of Trump, but then go on kind of way, way beyond that into the transformation of their economic uh, and so forth systems, which are even more damaging uh, than ours. That would be hugely significant. In terms of China and, and India, the crucial thing is don't allow anyone, either here or there, the excuse of being able to say, well, Britain's not changing, so why the hell should we, right? If we, if we try to change and if we try to show that a better future is actually possible in this direction, that's one of the, the, one of the beautiful secrets here. I call it the beautiful coincidence that many of the things that we need to do in order to stop collapse are the very same things that we need to do in order to improve our lives better community healthier food healthier living uh, more uh, exercise less loneliness etc that's the future that we could have if we drastically rein in our fossil fuel uh, consumption and we need to be saying also to people in India say you know you, you think you want to be like us but actually we're not all that we're cracked up to be you know did you know that we have this huge mental health epidemic this obesity epidemic etc cetera, etc cetera, right those things could be turned around if we move in the kind of direction that we need to move in anyway so that's the beautiful coincidence we can actually if we get it if we if we act smartly we can actually improve our lives at the same time as we manage to stop ourselves from destroying the future i agree
0: i like the idea of the ejection of trump i'm imagining a big (laughs) comfy chair that he's led to he's have a can of coke president, and sits down, the button is pushed. That would be good space travel, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Hi. Hi. Um, so you talked about uh, other countries like India and China uh, changing and you talked about uh, zero carbon net emissions in the UK, but we want to aim for that on an international level. Yeah. But how do you deal with that when you've got presidents like Donald Trump who don't believe in climate change, and other developing countries where their economies rely on burning fossil fuels and things like that, and they're not as rich as the UK. We eject them into space. We <laughs> eject them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know,
1: obviously uh, Trump has to go, and, and one sign of the changing times is that climate is featuring in a serious way in an American presidential campaign for the first time ever. So a terrible mistake that Al Gore made when he ran in 2000 was not putting climate centrally in his campaign. Because as a result, it's a terrible mistake because, you know, obviously it should have been central anyway. But it was also a terrible mistake because it meant that he wasn't being authentic. He wasn't being true to himself. Right. And people could tell that he seemed like a robot on on the stump because he wasn't talking about the stuff that he really cared about. In this U.S. presidential campaign, we have a bunch of Democrat candidates who clearly do care about it. And even the ones who don't are trying desperately (laughs) now to jump on board. So that's a huge, uh, a huge positive uh, sign. Uh, In terms of the so-called developing countries, I I keep saying so-called, by the way, because this concept of development is a highly dubious concept. Did you know it was basically invented by an American president, Truman, who said "Look, we are developed and there are these other countries that are developing. They're trying to become like us. Now there's other countries which are underdeveloped and they 're sort of at the bottom of the heap i mean it 's unbelievable kind of hubris and arrogance that says that we 've got everything sorted where you know how could we have everything sorted where not only do we have an obesity epidemic and a mental health epidemic but we 're on the point of destroying the entire planet um, so i don 't like these uh, these words uh, developing uh, developed etc but so called developing countries the the global majority countries the the global south etc one of the encouraging things about this moment in history is that actually many of them are not as fully bought into fossil fuels as we are so one of the crucial things we have to do is we have to help them be able to leapfrog past the fossil fuel stage of so-called development to a kind of cleaner future so for example many african countries actually are very low uh, emitters one of the absolutely obvious things we should be doing from the point of view of justice but also from the point of view of providing ourselves a a future across the planet right is giving away green technology to them right we ought to we ought to provide loads of renewable energy technology and other clean green technology to these countries for free that would make much more sense than most of the aid that currently happens Um, and uh, and yeah it's just a a no-brainer
0: as opposed to for example supporting and propping up uh, oil-rich regimes in yeah, the Middle yeah. East Absolutely. so that they can continue to mine and drill and then sell yeah. that oil cheaply to yeah. those so-called developing countries. Yeah. So there's, it's all connected, isn't it? Like, all the activism needs to come together to demand those yeah. Did that answer your question? It's difficult, though, isn't it? Take the ejection into space one. That's, the, that's clear, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Hi. Hi, could you say a little bit about the British media and how they Mm. act as a barrier to the truth getting out? Because Mm. the Guardian, by the Guardian, I just see there's just no representation of XR and their activities. So other people, yeah, so people, there's a huge barrier.
1: Yeah, so that's a question I'm I'm very interested in and have been quite involved in, I'll try to be brief. Um, we are campaigning directly, as I say, um, with regard to the media um, and we're starting to see reason for to believe that that campaigning is having success. So yesterday we targeted the, the Mail and also the Independent um, and what you find is that actually there's a lot of journalists, even on a newspaper like the, like the Mail, um, who are sympathetic and certainly loads of journalists inside the BBC who are sympathetic. And the BBC has changed a lot for the better over the last year. Um, so, uh, some of you may be aware that uh, last summer I headed a campaign to stop the BBC featuring climate change deniers as balance, um, and that campaign was successful. Uh, and they changed their their policy as of last September. They now no longer have Lord Lawson and these other morons on to spout nonsense about uh, about uh, climate and so forth. Um, and then, of course, they had the David Atomer program, um, which again was conveniently timed during the April Rebellion. Um, and that was another new departure for the BBC, a program which is really is, it wasn't perfect by any means, that program. There's all sorts of critiques I could make of it, but my goodness, it was by far the best thing the BEAB have done on climate yet. Um, the BBC are moving in the right direction, but they need to be continually pressured by everybody to continue moving in that direction so i would say to everyone here whenever you notice the the bbc doing anything problematic you know make your views known get on social media about it make, if it's a clear enough instance it's worth making complaints to the bbc about it because sometimes those complaints work you know the complaints around lawson did ultimately uh work um what we also need to be doing is creating our own media uh, don't just think oh well we're stuck with this media system There's a really interesting idea being floated now for uh, an XR newspaper. Wow, now that would be a real challenge to the Daily Mail. So if there are people here who are journalists or who would like to be involved um, in uh, creating alternative media, come and have a word with me, or better still try to get in touch directly with the people who are already doing this, because I'm not actually involved in those groups. There are so many of these diverse things now there's XR journalists, there's this XR um, nascent newspaper group and so on and so forth um, do get involved, uh, and of course it doesn't need to be through XR either, you know, all, as you were saying there's all sorts of good organisations one of the things that XR is trying to do is to, is to create a broader space for others you know, our, a central part of our mission is to make what people think politically impossible, politically possible, that's one of the reasons I think that the green vote shot up in, in May because people suddenly thought well, that just makes sense, given this new context. But it applies to all sorts of things. I'm hoping that all sorts of lobbying organisations and NGOs and so on and, and media organisations which are trying to do the right thing will have more space now to do that right thing in. So you know, don't be a passive consumer in this. Let's, let's see if we can make it happen.
0: And those demands spread out across other things. There was a really interesting audit by BAFTA recently where they um, looked at... Uh, how many times climate was mentioned in things like ongoing serials, soap operas, dramas. Uh, climate uh, crisis mentioned less in all of those things than rhubarb. <laughs> and 20 times less than the event that will happen in October, more likely. Yeah. So
1: Something that we desperately need is more good art about this. So that would be another plea if there are, if there are artists, especially narrative artists in the audience. We need writers, filmmakers, dramatists, etc., to really work on this, so this this book of mine, the film philosophy of ecology and enlightenment, is about that. It's about the films that we already have that do that. So the ones I mentioned earlier, plus other films which I think have really hit the nail on the head, such as uh, Melancholia, uh, Never Let Me Go, uh, The Road, uh, Avatar. Um, but we need more. Um, there w- one nice example uh, which kind of did this a few years ago. I would say that the greatest ever uh, TV um, sci-fi series uh Battlestar Galactica the remake it's
0: just difficult you can't say you can't (laughs) come into the space shed and make massive sweeping cases of what is the best sci-fi film it's okay Battlestar the new Battlestar Galactica if you haven't (laughs) seen it have you seen The Expanse this is a whole other thing we'll do this another time let let me just
1: finish on Battlestar Galactica because um part of the reason I think it's so great is it's about ecology in space uh, and it's, once again, like the three films I mentioned, like 2001, Gravity, and Apollo 13, it's about coming home. It's ultimately about coming home to uh, a film. It's very beautiful and very moving in that way. But we need so much more. We need really we need intelligent, moving, gripping dramas, narratives, etc., of all kind that get people to think about this and get them to see different possible scenarios. So many of you perhaps are aware of years and years, you've all seen years and years, very very good um, some, some BBC players still yeah. I think it's really good Russell T Davis, but not enough about climate or ecology I agree it? what we need is something like a years and years which is more climate and ecology focused and I would say which is also combines with sliding doors anyone see sliding doors where you have the two different scenarios the kind of good future and, this the, is and just the bad a, this future this is just a pitch now is anyone yeah. here a commissioner this is the
0: blatant pitch Anyone commissioning?
1: But I can't write it. I need you to if, write it. If I'm anyone not an here, artist.
0: yeah, if anyone here is a commissioner, they are keeping Welsh stum going. <laughs> I know this place is full of artists. Some, um, if we
1: had a, if we had a sort of sliding doors version of years and years with an ecology and climate focus, and if it became a big thing, if everyone started to see and think, oh my God, yeah, we could have this collapse, or we could have this future that's actually okay, and if they started to see some of the steps, I think that'd be so valuable. It's criminal that doesn't hasn't happened yet.
0: I am trying to get commissioned at the moment a climate musical uh, and. Uh <laughs> my flight director literally laughing at me. It's a good <laughs> idea, it would be great. Right, sorry. Uh it is we're getting we've overrun a little bit from what we intended, but this is a really, really great conversation. Um just quick show of hands. Who else has uh questions they want to ask Rupert? Uh, don't be shy, put your hand you know, we need there's a couple let's do these two and then uh I think we need to so yeah. um excellently shirted human in the middle here. Thank you. Hi.
2: Um, I guess I'm just wanting to ask a question about communicating about the climate crisis, um, particularly with people who you care a lot about but perhaps aren't too well-informed and you no. want to find the right way to inform them without enforcing things on them. Because I think everybody's been in a position where they weren't well-informed and they, I guess everybody here who is now better-informed having been here has been along some kind of process themselves. Yeah. And looking back on what happened with me, I don't think it would have been helpful to have someone shoving things in my face. Mm -hmm. But to some extent, that's... It's easy to
0: avoid. What did happen to you? What brought you to it? Yeah.
2: Um, Reading um, The Uninhabitable Earth was Uh quite a big one for me. And then also just seeing what was happening with Extinction Rebellion in April and seeing that Mm. there was hope. um, Yeah, good. And there was stuff that we could do ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I have lots of friends from different backgrounds, and I don't think they're going to take the same process. I'm not going to tell them to read really the Uninhabitable Earth necessarily because I don't yeah. think necessarily that would.
1: Yeah. Um, how about gr-
0: this civilization is well, finished? Yeah. Would they go there for go. that? Uh,
2: probably,
1: <laughs> probably the same. <laughs> if it's, uh, although it's, it's perhaps worth a little plug at this point. Uh, when we do finish, I will be selling some of my books if anyone wants them. Um, and if you've got, if you're talking, it's because it's different strokes for different folks, right? With a certain kind of person, they may want like rigorous kind of. Um, detailed scientific philosophical etc information and if they want that then you could do worse than, than, than give them one of these books facing up to client reality or the civilization is finished that might be helpful different, uh, different kinds of people might like different kinds of things I think some people art could be very powerful in the way I just described um, some people killer facts can kind of work so try one or two of the ones I just mentioned for example um, did you know that we're sending one species extinct every 10 minutes Did you know that on the government's um, new target for carbon neutral by by 2050, great that we've got there, we didn't have it before, but that means we're making the crisis worse for the next 30 years and it's an emergency. Did you know, and this is a really mind-blowing one, this is a really terrifying one. um, Did you know just how potent fossil fuels are, just how disastrous the greenhouse effect is let me give you a little illustration. And, and this, is, this is one you can share with people that really opens or blows their mind. Um, so you've got a lump of coal, right? You burn that lump of coal and you get some heat from it because you want to heat up your house or whatever. You know? Or you're heating up, it, you're in a coal-fired power station. You get, some co- you get some heat from that coal. That lump of coal also releases some carbon into the atmosphere. And the carbon stays there a long time. It probably stays there on average about 100 years, maybe a couple hundred years. Right? It stays there a long time. How much more heat gets trapped in the atmosphere as a result of the greenhouse effect than the heat generated from burning the coal? Does anyone know? What do you think? Is it, is it maybe is it five times as much? Is it ten times as I much? I don't know, Rupert. Is it five <laughs> times as much?
0: Shall I tell you? Yeah. Higher, higher. Ten. <laughs> hundred. Higher, lower. Done at hundred. Hundred? It's a hundred
1: thousand. You get, if you burn a lump of coal, the carbon that goes in the atmosphere produces a greenhouse effect, which is 100,000 times as strong as the heat you get from burning that coal. You might think, oh, thank goodness I don't burn coal anymore. Well, the figures are only a bit better for oil and gas. Right, for oil, it's about 40,000 times, but for gas is about 25,000 times. That's still a lot. These are weapons of mass destruction. We burn these things much longer. We are going to kill ourselves and most other species with us. That's just fact. So maybe that, that's a helpful one. Did you know that the greenhouse effect is so strong that if you burn a lump of coal, it produces 100,000 times as much heat in the atmosphere just from you burning that one lump of coal?
0: So is that, I mean, ha, th- w- having this conversation, I would honestly recommend just talking about it. And yeah. if it's with specific people, thinking a little, spending a little bit of time thinking about how do I talk about it with them. Yeah. And even if it's yeah. talking about your feelings about it, I think at least then it's a conversation that's in the room, and then they get to choose what their response to it is. I think talking that's about your feelings thing.
1: is very strong, especially if you if you're not just talking about them but actually showing them. Right? If you can actually, like, um, one of the media performances that i've done which people seem to find most powerful is when i went on channel five during the april rebellion and i spoke about how the climate school strikers are begging for their lives uh, how these young people are begging for the right to have a life at all and my voice kind of cracked a a little bit and i think a a lot of people were just like oh my god yeah that's it you know that that gets you right here etc that's another thing if you can like really actually show your friends or family whoever it is Look, I'm really scared about this, or I'm really sad about this. Uh, Grief stricken, you know, that can be enormously powerful in breaking people's
0: barriers. Final question, uh, because Rupert, you're not going to run away, no, are you? I'm going to, so be here to We sell can continue this conversation, got... but we've got flight director overruling me again, like really subtly, but definitely fine. Uh, two more questions. <laughs> uh, this is not unrelated to the previous question. Uh, I think it came up when you were talking with Richard Murphy at the Quakers all in Norwich I wasn't there so this is for my benefit really um, at a tactical level um, if Extinction Rebellion does things like picket uh, Heathrow so people can't get away with us on holidays mm. there's a high risk of alienation of the, the large percentage of the population how do you advocate dealing
2: with
1: that tactically okay so this is the big Heathrow question <laughs> fine yeah um, <laughs> two, uh, two different aspects to that. Firstly, I think it's absolutely clear that Heathrow is a completely legitimate target, right? Uh, remember, 70% of the flights are taken by 15% of the people in this country. Flying is overwhelmingly uh, uh, a thing done by the rich. 80% of inhabitants of the earth have never flown. I mean the humans, not, <laughs> not just the animals. Uh, yeah? Um... If we expand the, uh, the third runway at Heathrow, and that's what the plan process is, uh, is about um, by XR, which may happen in September, um, if we expand the third runway at Heathrow, that alone ensures that it is completely impossible for us to attain 2025 or even 2030 for carbon net zero. You know, Heathrow alone, basically, can, can take out everything that uh, this country is allowed, as it were, or should be allowed to emit. Having said that, I have some sympathy with your question. So there's an internal argument going on about this within XR right now. And anyone who's here who's actually from XR, I would urge you to make your views known about this. Make them known in your, uh, in your local group. Make them known on, on social media. Um, uh, I've got a, a, a pamphlet which I've just written about this, which I've just put out on, on Twitter. And in this pamphlet, I say, yeah, Heathrow is a completely legitimate target but it will be difficult not to alienate people if we target Heathrow maybe there are smarter targets so my suggestion is that the the smartest thing for us to do in September if we're going to target an airport is to target London City Airport London City Airport is a very interesting airport London City Airport has a short runway it it only it only has planes take off from it which are not huge jumbo jets in other words it basically is used by um, by the elite it's used by people in private jets and small and small planes taking uh, taking flights, which are the worst flights of all. You know, short haul flights are the worst flights of all because most of the damage of flying is done by the takeoff, um, and because obviously short haul flights you could take a train or whatever instead. Um, London City Airport is in a deprived area of London. Virtually no one living around it uses it. Um, it's a, it's horrible for noise pollution and air pollution because it's right in the centre of London. It would be relatively easy to shut down because it's small. <laughs> There's all these things in favour. It seems to me of targeting London City Airport rather than Heathrow. And London City Airport also wants to expand even more than Heathrow does. It plans to double its size. Essentially, absolutely crazy uh, in the next ten years. So my um, pragmatic recommendation to um, to fellow rebels is: let's, if we're going to shut down an airport, let's go for London City Airport. Um, if, we do go, if we do go for Heathrow instead, I'll be totally backing that. As I say, I think it's completely legitimate. But I think we can be a little smarter. And we do need to be smart as we move into the next stage of our rebellion because the government and the police are going to be more ready for us next time
0: they are now that you've told them what you're doing <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's going to be on the podcast this house is full of stuff that you will need and he's going to be at london city airport october, <laughs> october time so you can
1: go to the house then yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah very good point um, <laughs> your final question for now hi hi hello um i would like to replace my boiler with um some kind of sustainable well, this energy, is cool we've turned into but like i don't a know how <laughs> it's so expensive to do what
1: when will I be able to afford to do
0: that? Yeah, What oh, a great question. That's a fantastic <laughs> final Sadly, question of latitude. Sadly, I'm not an engineer.
1: Uh, all I can say to you is, is firstly, uh, obviously, um, move to a renewable energy tariff, and we should be trying to back renewable energy in this country. We've got to be moving away from uh, gas. Um, uh, and secondly, um, I'm going to dodge the question by saying that this question, like many others, which I don't know what the answers are, would be the kind of thing that Citizens' Assemblies should help to solve. In other words, ordinary people like you, but with the very best of advice. That's the that's the crucial thing about the citizens assemblies. Parliament too often ocup- op- uh, What's the word? Uh, operates in a kind of vacuum, right? Um, uh, often um, the chief scientist says X, and Parliament says Y, and the government actually does Z, um, right? I think that a citizens assembly would really listen to the, the best expertise, including engineering expertise, for the kind of stuff that we should be doing. Uh, XR is not here with a detailed policy manifesto XR is not a political party XR is saying let's tell the truth let's act now to save ourselves and save the future and in terms of how we act let's do it democratically on the very best advice including in terms of questions like how we're going to do our boilers
0: Nice, what a great answer, right? <laughs> um Ru- Honest answer Rupert, if people aren't already uh, get involved with or signed up to XR how, do, how does anyone get involved with XR?
1: So first obvious thing, go over to the xr tent, get yourself some stickers, sign up on the mailing list, etc. Um, if, uh, if you want to, obviously you can also do it online and so on. There are XR groups all over the country now, many of them very substantial and robust. If there isn't one where you live, then for goodness' sake, create one. Um, also, um, there's there's obviously loads of stuff you can do online. You know, follow Extinction Rebellion on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, etc. etc. What is your Twitter handle? Green Rupert Reed is the best one, and, and uh, Rupert Reid is R E A D as in book.
0: Cool. And it's extinctionrebellion.earth, I think, isn't it? Uh, y- um, you're talking about the website? Yeah.
1: No, it's, uh, it's re- I think it's just rebellion.earth.
0: We don't know what the website sure is. The, is the, website Rebellion? One yeah. the website
1: is just rebellion.earth.
0: Use your yeah. ser- internet search engine of choice, and it will take you there. Um, brilliant. Uh, we are on at UnTheatre on all of the socials. Uh, the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre project. You can, uh, for us, there. tag us into anything that you're doing. Check out the live from the Space Shed podcast. Yeah. It's got loads of really cool pe- people that come into Space Shed and are extremely interesting. And obviously, and if you want
1: to, if you're thinking, oh, I wish so and so had been here, you can. You'll be able to share that with them yes you, of course.
0: absolutely and you're not going to run away so no. if you didn't get to answer a, uh, ask a question you wanted to continue a conversation with Rupert he's going to be sticking around come and grab him don't actually grab I'm him selling i selling things for a very
1: reasonable price
0: yes and of course the books uh, if you want to learn more about the work but for now would you please give a massive latitude far away forest round of applause to Rupert <laughs> thank you Rupert <laughs> We totally can join the rebellion, MJ. As Rupert was saying, the next big event starts on the seventh of October, and you can find out more by searching up International Extinction Rebellion. Check out their website, rebellion.earth. <laughs> and if any of you, like me and Minnie John, really want to get involved in helping to save the planet, but don't really know what to do, we've made a website to help. How to save the. Earth. That's how to save the. Earth. It's got loads of suggestions for things that you can do right now. Things you can do with a little more effort this week or this year. It's even got tips for you if you want to dedicate your life to fighting climate breakdown. How to save the dot earth. And as always, you can connect with us on any of the social medias. We're at untheatre. That's at N Theatre on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please help us spread the word. Tell everyone you know to subscribe to Live from the Spaceshed. (laughs) Next up in the Spaceshed, MJ, is the brilliant Shatanya Kumar. He's a senior policy advisor for the Green Alliance. He's been doing amazing work for years. He'll be chatting with me about how we've gotten into this mess and what big changes we can expect in the future as we try to save ourselves from the worst effects of climate breakdown. (laughs) Onwards and upwards indeed, MJ. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, like I say, please subscribe to Live from the Space Shed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like, please leave us a review. It really helps. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production with Season 1 brought to you in association with the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, the Cockcroft Institute, the Space and Arts Council, England, with special thanks to Dr. Rob Appleby of Manchester University. Our theme music is Go, by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their extremely kind permission. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, with additional sound design by Elena Pena. The show is produced by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from our friends at StoryThings. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production on behalf of the Unlimited Space Agency. See you for more! <laughs> Live from the Space Shed soon.